This is an audiobook recording. The Oahu Front. Written by Michael Logan, PhD. Produced and distributed by Armadillo Audiobooks. All characters and events depicted in the following recording are entirely fictional, however, historical context and references are meticulously accurate. This is the second installment of a multi-part novel delivered in serial audio chapters, available wherever reputable podcasts are distributed. Full text of the Oahu Front is available for pre-order, online and at discerning retailers. For details, please navigate to oahufront.com. Chapter 2 Sam Bars was no ideologue. At heart he was a pragmatist. In his line of political mercenary and information work he was often subject to competing opportunities for personal enrichment. However, he chose his mandates carefully, and once he committed, was steadfastly loyal to the person or task. He saw his mandates through, and was careful to manage conflicts of interest. Unlike some of his competitors, Bars did not vacillate in the frequently changing direction of the wind. However, he did read the overall direction and flow of the tide. He knew that when faced with a powerful rip current, even the strongest swimmer would drown trying to work against it. Riding the rip out to sea, and finding your way back through a lateral move, was sometimes necessary for survival. This analogy was apt when dealing with powerful figures in the underworld or in politics, who were well-resourced, and could ultimately crush him if they set their mind to it. When challenged, he rode out the tide and moved laterally, giving them what they wanted at times, playing useful roles until he found an edge to reciprocate. Bars was never accommodating to the point of weakness. He always occupied his own real estate. A formidable independent power, he was someone who could be influenced, but never controlled. The gangsters, arms dealers, local politicians, and mainland tongs had no choice but to respect him. He likened his role to an ambassador on enemy territory. He had no ultimate protections on their turf if full-blown war broke out but could count on a certain level of diplomatic consideration and protocol. He carried himself with the quiet confidence of someone backstopped by a formidable power even if his adversaries did not always know who. This raised the occasional challenge. For example when Sai, who controlled the downtown drug trade suspected bars was moving in on his territory. Sai had him snatched up for questioning. Bars was taken to an empty Chinatown nail salon, with frosted windows. An exuberant Sai henchman had sat him down, and with a grin of irony, removed an index fingernail with pliers, 
before even asking any questions. After an understandable bout of agitation, Vaz had said he was more than happy to talk shop. Sai immediately entered from a back room, and they were able to have a more civil introduction. Sai learned that Bars and his poker game had nothing to do with drugs, but rather, that he was operating in Oahu with a more international focus, under the protection of US naval intelligence. Sai also learned that he would soon face significant competition, from an inbound container, with a load of fentanyl from Mexico. His primary competition's downtown crew was tooling up to move the package. This candid exchange of valuable intelligence saved Bars's other fingernails. He swam with the riptide, until he could move laterally, and find his way back to land. To do so, he followed up a week later, with his own flex on Sai. Bars needed a display of force to reiterate that he was bigger than the local drug trade. He cashed in a chit with local DEA who raided a Sai stash house that he had learnt about from naval intelligence. DEA seized some product but let a Sai henchman off a 14-year trafficking collar for the reasonable cost of a fingernail. Sai got the message. From this point onward there was a respectful entente. Months later, the two met for a tense then friendly drink at a dive bar down the street from the poker room. Sai even showed up to the game on occasion, to take stock of the crowd. Beyond the drug dealers, Bars' secret for dealing with particularly powerful or reprehensible characters was to always act with a certain overt standard of integrity, even when engaging with those that obviously had none. Those with integrity were useful to powerful people, and reprobates were often curious about the concept. They wanted to answer some variation of the question, is this person stronger or weaker than myself as a result of their convictions? Are they foolish for handicapping themselves with an arbitrary, sentimental code of behavior? Or are they ultimately stronger in their commitment to it? Do they follow these rules for a specific utilitarian reason, something others have yet to figure out? Powerful organizations including criminal enterprises always had their codes usually to establish some baseline level of trust among thieves, for practical working purposes. The Mafia Code of Silence, the Samurai Bushido, prison rules, cartel supply consensus, and business associations all served a similar purpose. Those who followed them were not necessarily trustworthy, but were more predictable than their base nature would otherwise inspire. Bars thought that when dealing with a ruthless thug, one should never pretend to be like them, glad hand, or feign a connection on common ground. It was always better to be different. A curiosity. Authentic. Respectful, but not bending. If they smelled a whiff of an act being put on Bars was dead. In contrast to Laos, and some of Bars' other past contracts, Honolulu's underworld was somewhat more civilized, and the market had only occasional need for violent enforcer types.
For sophisticated gangsters, the market opportunity was less about controlling the streets for Hawaii-focused crime, and more about acting as a connection point between America and Asia, facilitating transnational projects, finance, laundering, and trade in secrets. Honolulu was the perfect base for bars and the poker game was one of the more productive vehicles for his work. Gambling was illegal in Hawaii and with no state infrastructure was a total free-for-all. A large number of illegal gaming rooms were a focal point for much of Honolulu's violent crime. These were not safe places and were on the priority radar of Honolulu PD, given a marked increase in gun violence in the 2020s. Drugs were plentiful. Winners at the tables were sometimes followed home by associates of the gaming rooms and robbed. Police had few tools to address the rooms and shutting them down was like whack-a-mole. Raided locations popped up elsewhere within days. Bars's innovation in the crowded market was to provide safety. He maintained high-quality security and vetted players by invitation. Groups were not allowed. No drugs on premises. A small entrance space on the first floor was fortified with a two-steel door airlock system and heavy-duty magnetic locks. There was a secure cage with cashier that doubled as a panic room. The spacious Chinatown digs were rugged, but comfortable. The air conditioning worked and filled the cavernous industrial space. It had exposed large oak beams, distressed 1930s wood floors, frosted square windows with panels framed in lead, cruddy skylights, and a small bar with a few stools. The bar was glossy black in an art deco style and had recessed lights that illuminated vertical ribbing in a sawtooth pattern. A lounge area was fitted with comfortable seating and mounted televisions without sound for sports. Some of the rake was reinvested in amenities including the complimentary bar, canapes, and a masseuse. As a bit of a joke, he usually had some Oreos on hand. For KGB wannabes. Sai of all people, had indulged in a mouthful of these on his first visit. To bars, this, and the heavy-handed introductory approach, revealed a different sort of tell than the Malkovich character. Sai was an unserious thug, and not a player. An attractive 45-year-old Chinese woman, named Alice Wu, managed the room, its dealers, and finances from a retrofitted former shop floor manager office. Wu was tough, kept the dealers in check, and while inviting to players, functioned more like a chief of operations, than a host. She rarely needed to call in security staff and bars could leave the room, for days at a time, in her capable hands. There were four standard tables. Usually, she only hosted two games, a higher stakes table with a $50,000 buy-in, and a low stakes table for the $7,000 crowd. Professionals, other than bars assets, were quietly shunned. 
The tables had built-in ports which were convenient for players to charge their phones. And convenient for bars, to download data from anyone foolish enough to plug in. The space was well covered in invisible surveillance equipment. This fed data into an artificial intelligence facial and audio recognition system that automatically transcribed, analyzed, and cataloged incoming data. Keyword flags were detected, and conversation fragments were automatically sent to bars via text message. On occasion this yielded productive information. However, the main informational benefits of the room were the relationships he and his assets cultivated. The best intel was mostly realized away from the tables. Bars managed the nightly player list personally and walk-ins were possible for trusted players. Honolulu PD deputies had exclusive and complimentary use of the room for a monthly game and otherwise left the room alone, focusing their enforcement activities on the more violent and problematic gaming rooms. The balance sheet was always healthy, and collection was rarely an issue with the room's higher-end clientele. Many debts like Nakashiro's were converted to in-kind services, which were ultimately funded through the rake. While it did turn a modest profit, the Chinatown game was less of a business, and more of a blood pressure cuff, keeping pulse on the city. The drug trade had a long, but understated history on the Hawaiian Islands. Going back to the late 1800s, opium traders were centrally engaged in bringing in a large Chinese labor force for sugar plantations. Chinese traders held stakes in sandalwood export to China, and various other trades in sugar, coffee, and inbound opium. Some became prominent members within Hawaiian society, and were closely allied with the Hawaiian monarchy. This changed when American sugar interests moved in and forced the Bayonet Constitution in 1887. The Constitution had been imposed to curb the power of the monarchy. It removed voting rights from native Hawaiians and all Asian Hawaiians. The power of Chinese opium traders, who had also played a representative role to the US government for the ruling Qing dynasty, was gradually curbed. The Constitution was partially a reaction to an 1886 law that prohibited opium beyond licensed producers. A major scandal that saw bribes, provided by the Chinese opium traders to the monarchy, was part of the catalyst and pretext for regime change used by an American and British-backed militia called the Honolulu Rifles. The Rifles provided the muscle for American sugar and British opium interests in the gradual overthrow of the Hawaiian monarchy. In 1893, these assertive commercial sugar interests had more or less taken Hawaii for themselves, 
with little regard to the views of the President Grover Cleveland administration. Hawaii was then formally annexed by the United States in 1898, for strategic reasons, during the Spanish-American War. Indeed, Hawaii was part of the fabric of American war history, most notably, the sneak attack on Pearl Harbor which had left its indelible mark on the world. Hawaii's location in the Pacific had served a prominent strategic role throughout World War II. Oahu was critical to the military supply line and as a refuge for damaged ships to return for repair. It continued to be a key foothold for the projection of American naval power. Oahu's strategic significance in the Pacific was of increasing interest to the adversaries that Bars was contracted to oppose and mitigate. Bars's mandate was to identify, monitor, and where possible, disrupt the growing network of quiet provocateurs that were active in Honolulu, Vancouver, San Francisco, Manila, Bangkok, Sydney, Hanoi, and a number of other cities, including Vientiane Laos and the Golden Triangle Special Economic Zone. Bars's Oahu operation was dubbed Morimura. This was named after the infamous spy who worked out to the Japanese consulate in Honolulu the late 1930s. In the lead-up to war, Morimura had surveilled Pearl Harbor, tracking the movements, characteristics, and defenses of the U.S. Pacific Fleet. He had provided precise information which directly informed the Japanese sneak attack that took 2,403 American lives. Morimura had habitually walked Pearl City, rented aircraft, and even conducted swimming excursions to inform his reports to Tokyo. Prior to Pearl Harbor, U.S. Army commanders had been quite preoccupied by the threat of physical sabotage to infrastructure and military installations from within Hawaii's large Japanese population. But they largely missed the espionage that would enable an external attack. While an aircraft carrier-based sneak attack was highly unlikely with modern satellite technology, Bars's job was to answer the question of what a present-day Morimura network might be focused on. Japan was, of course, no longer a diaspora of interest. End of chapter 2 The Oahu Front Written by Michael Logan Produced and distributed by Armadillo Audio Books Full text of The Oahu Front is available for pre-order at theoahufront.com Coming up, next chapter We meet a retired US Marine who cannot seem to leave his career behind the Marine is at the center of a controversy on Oahu that catches the attention of the Honolulu FBI field office. Previous war in the Pacific casts a long shadow. The Marine considers Oahu's strategic role in Pacific conflicts and reflects on how technology is rapidly changing the future of warfare. We are left wondering 
What is the connection to Sam Bars?